Have you thought about your funeral? And if you have, have you thought about what music, what songs you might want sung? Uh, perhaps you don't think that way, but I do. I usually conduct eight or ten funerals a year. It's quite common, and so I think about my funeral. I think about what songs that I might want. It's difficult for me because it's like Bible verses. I've got about 300 favorite hymns, you know, so I don't know. Uh, and we might think that funeral songs, there'd be very few of them. But I have heard some strange songs at funerals. I, uh, I had uh, uh, one fellow who requested that when his wife died, they sang... You picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille. <clears throat> buddy of mine down in South Carolina, uh, a man in the church died, and the widow called John and said, Well, I've got the music. John said, Okay. And she said, The first one I want is a song by Roy Clark. Thank God and Greyhound, you're gone. Truth. John said, Excuse me? <laughs> what? Thank God and Greyhound, you're gone? Seriously? So you wonder what kind of marriage that was. But do you, know, do you know what the number one played song at funerals in America is? I would never have guessed this. I would have maybe thought Amazing Grace. You know, uh, the number one played song for funerals in America is I Did It My Way by Frank Sinatra. Uh, Paul Anka actually wrote it. But Sinatra made it famous. Now, you're familiar, maybe you're familiar with the lyrics, maybe you're not. So let me just read some of them for you. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. Death is coming. My friends, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. But more, much more than this, I did it my way. Regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption. I planned each chartered course, each careful step along the way, but much more, much more than this, I did it my way. Yes, there were times, I'm sure you knew, when I bit off more than I could chew, but through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and spit it out. I faced it all and I stood tall. I did it my way. I've loved and laughed and cried. I've had my fill, my share of losing. And now as tears subside, I find it all so amusing to think I did all that, and may I say, not in a shy way. Oh, no, not me. I did it my way. For what is a man, what has he got, if not himself, when he has not? To say all the things he truly feels, and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows. I did it my way. What does that say about a culture that that song is one that is the most played or most requested song for a funeral? I think, first of all, it says that this is a society that has no conception of sin, that has no conception of humility, that has no conception that they are going out to meet a holy God. I said last, in our last uh, message from this passage that the that verse 21 brings a great sigh of relief 
From chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, there's just been this catalog of depravity and more and more and more and more. And finally, Paul says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But then he comes to, he comes to Romans 3.21 and he says, but now. But for many people that would not be a sigh of relief. The vast majority of people in the world today have no conception of what sin is. A survey was done a couple of years ago and the question was asked, what is sin? And the answer that was most often given was something naughty but a lot of fun. So there's no conception of holiness. There's no conception of have, having wronged a holy God. One of the uh, commentaries that I have on the book of Romans written by an Australian by the name of Michael Bird is just an excellent commentary. But he suggests that perhaps in our world today we should quit using the word sin simply because of that. Because people have no no frame of reference. He suggests that maybe we should use the words like evil and wicked. That people understand what something evil is. You know, evil is the guy that's voting for the one you're not voting for. That's, that's evil. You know, wicked is the other party. That's always the wicked, you know. But we have no frame of reference for sin. So there's no relief that comes when we talk about a righteousness of God that is revealed. But for us, hopefully, for us, we know sin. We know what it is to have broken God's perfect law and to have done it often. And so when we come to these words, I hope that there is for us a great sense of relief, that there is an answer to sin, that God has provided a way that my sins may be forgiven, that my sins may be covered, that I may stand before Him, that I may enter into His glory. And I will do so not on a righteousness of my own, not my way, but because I have put my faith, my trust in Jesus Christ, because I believe that His death, burial, and resurrection his ascension to the right hand of the Father provides me with a perfect righteousness. This passage of Scripture talks about justification, about the way that man is made right with God. And what could be more important than to know how to be right with a holy God? Nothing is more important in time or eternity and we saw in the last message that, that Paul talks about the manifestation of justification. He says, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's apart from the law. Works won't do it. No one can work their way into heaven. If you want to talk about any, kinds of, any kind of works righteousness, it's the work of Jesus Christ. Because none else will suffice. Then Paul gives a description of justification. He says that we are justified as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a 
propitiation. In other words, the wrath of God is satisfied by the death of Christ. Theologians talk about the active and passive obedience of Christ. Actively, He kept the law of God perfectly. He kept every law of God. He loved God with all His heart, with all His soul, with all His mind, with all of His strength, every moment of His existence. And then there is His passive obedience. He went to the cross and died for our sins. So that His active obedience might be imputed to us. And so that our sins might be imputed to Him. So that we might be declared righteous. We might be justified. Baptists love cliches. I taught a class on justification here in the association a few years ago. And I made the mistake of asking a question to a group of preachers. Never asked children or preachers questions. But anyway, I said, what is justification? One fellow jumped up, <coughs> seminary degree. <coughs> he said, it, it's just as if I'd never sinned. He was so tickled with himself. And I said, well, first of all, there will never be a time in heaven when it will be as just you'd never sinned. You'll always be aware that you were a sinner, saved by grace. That you were a sinner, and the grace of Jesus Christ brought you in. But let's suppose that you go to stand before God and you have no sin. How's He going to let you into heaven? You have no righteousness. You have none. And without holiness, no one can see God. So justification is far more than just as if I'd never sinned. That may be part of the truth, very small part, but nothing like all that it entails. So Paul describes it. He gives us the intention of justification. It is to cover the sins not only of all who will believe now, but all in the Old Testament era. All of those, because he says in his forbearance, he had passed over those sins. All of those sacrifices that were made on Jewish altars did not atone for sin. They pointed to the one who would atone for sin, to Jesus Christ. All of those offerings pointed to Christ. That blood that was required, Leviticus 17 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. That the blood makes an atonement for the soul. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. That pointed to the blood of Jesus Christ who covers from all sin. So now, in verse 27... Paul talks about the implications of justification. The, he draws out the implications of humans being justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, whom God has set forth as a propitiation alone. He teaches us three things that I want you to think about this morning. First of all, he says, boasting is excluded. Number two, distinctions are rejected. And number three, the law is established. The fact that consequences are before the reader is, is evident from the conjunctions the apostle writes. Then what becomes of our boasting? The then 
indicates that the question is derived from the preceding exposition of justification by faith alone. The apostle continues his reasoning by pointing out what would necessarily follow if a person were not justified by faith. If the law was a means of justification, that would strongly suggest that God only cared about salvation for the Jews because the law was given to the Jews. It was not given to anyone else. So first of all, he says in verses 27 and 28, the implication of justification means that boasting is excluded. <clears throat> he asked the question in verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? What, what becomes of it? And throughout the section, Paul deals with this very convincingly as well as polemically. It's an argument that he makes quite strongly. What becomes of our boasting is the question. Boasting, to put it somewhat awkwardly, is self-announcing. When you are boasting, you are announcing something about yourself. But faith is self-renouncing. Boasting is introspective. Faith is extrospective. Boasting looks inward to the person themselves, while faith looks outward and upward to God. It is clear from these simple considerations that faith must be the gift of God. Nothing we can boast about if it's a gift. The apostle answers the first question with a very simple statement. What becomes of boasting? It's excluded or shut out. The reason that I think the, Paul, that the Apostle Paul needs to bring this up uh, with uh, the readers is that boasting was one of the essential problems of the Jews. <clears throat> if I did it my way is the most used funeral song in America. Boasting is a problem with Americans too. Pride, hubris. And then a second question follows in the interrogation. By what kind of law? And the apostle quickly answers, by a law of works? No. Here's the exclusion. It's a law of faith. The expression by the law of faith is generally thought to mean the principle of faith in general. But in the light of the context here in chapter 3, it may refer to the Old Testament law which many people thought taught that a person could be justified by faith or by law. The Jews had misunderstood it. The Jews thought that God gave them the law and that the law would save them. Now, deep down they knew they couldn't keep the law, so they built up all kinds of traditions and tacked them onto it. We do the same thing today. I think the reference in verse 21 to the law and the prophets confirms this. He's speaking of that Old Testament law. So now here comes the explanation. Verse 28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It is important, I think, to know that the apostle does not say that a person is justified because of faith, because that might suggest that faith saves. Faith is not the cause of justification. It's the means of justification. Faith doesn't save you. 
Jesus Christ saves you. Faith is the vehicle that takes you to Christ. You believe on Him. Faith was not crucified. Faith was not resurrected. Faith is not at the right hand of the Father. Faith is not coming back. Jesus Christ was crucified. Jesus Christ was resurrected. Jesus Christ stands at the right hand of the Father. And it is Jesus Christ who will come again. A man is justified by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. Some translations put alone in there, and it is, it is proper to do so. Because if anything other than faith can be the means of justification, then works done in obedience to the law could justify. But faith alone excludes everything else. Only Jesus Christ can save. So the first implication of justification by faith alone is it excludes boasting. And the second is it rejects distinctions. Verse 29, or is God the God of the, Gentile, of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? God's principle of justification by faith alone in Christ alone rejects all ethnic and racial distinctions. It's very important. In the first century, when John said, For God so loved the world, the Jew, the average Jew, would have been revolted by that statement. God doesn't love the world. God loves the Jews. He does not love Gentiles. They really thought that way. One of the, one of the greatest tragedies in the Christian church today is a failure to recognize this principle. That rejection, the rejection of distinctions based upon skin color, based upon ethnic background, based upon socioeconomic status, based upon anything. The one thing, the one thing that we have in common here this morning is the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And it doesn't matter if you're a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, doesn't matter if you're black or Latino or Chinese or Japanese, none of that matters. None of that matters. And yet all over the world today, there is racial distinctions. And much of it in the church of Jesus Christ, it is an abomination unto God. And everyone should have said amen. Anytime, anytime you make a distinction because of someone's skin color or someone's ethnic background, Anytime you make any kind of distinction like that, you are sinning against God and against the gospel, period. The church ought to be, ought to be the most variegated congregation in the town. By that I mean there ought to be all colors, all shapes, and all sizes. 
Because the thing that holds us together, our communion, is in Christ. Paul said, God is not the God of the Jew only. He is the God of the Gentile. I do not agree with the theological new perspective on Paul. I think they get justification wrong. But one thing they get right is the gospel abolishes all boundary markers. The gospel abolishes all dietary distinctions. The gospel abolishes all distinctions of ethnicity or of nationality or of anything else. It is the gospel that brings us together. We are here this morning not primarily because we are Americans, people. We are here because we are Christians. Because we've come to worship the God of heaven. We didn't come here to worship America. Now don't get me wrong, I'm a patriot. I have a flag at my home. I don't want it in here. Because in here, we've come to worship the great God of heaven. In here, first of all, our citizenship is in heaven. We're first of all a citizen of heaven, then of America. And if you realize that, you'll be a good citizen of both. All distinctions are rejected. The divine purpose of justification includes mercy and grace for all kinds of people, not just Jews, not just white people, not just black people, not just red or yellow or brown. doesn't matter. The gospel knocks all of that out of the park. It's all gone. So for, for us, God has only one way of salvation for everyone. And it is through Jesus Christ. And then finally he says the law is established. The final question of the section, the conclusion, introduces the third consequence or implication of the doctrine of justification by faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? The then infers a false conclusion that Paul thinks might be drawn from what he's been saying. Do you, are you saying then, Paul, that the law is worthless? That the law has been abrogated? That the law is no good? Paul is going to say in Romans 7 that the law is holy and just and good. So he doesn't want someone to think that because someone might conclude from what he has said that Paul's teaching nullifies the law. By no means, he says. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The law here uh, has been taken to mean the whole of the New Testament, a meaning that, it, again, I said it appears to have in 319. Paul cited from the whole spectrum of the Old Testament from Romans 118 to 320. Uh, alternately, it has been taken to mean only the Pentateuch, only the first five books of the Bible. Uh, the most common meaning, and I think the one that is proper, is it refers to the Mosaic Law, the moral teaching, what we call the Ten Commandments. I think Paul has that meaning in mind here. 
And in what sense, in what sense does justification by faith alone uphold the law? Some believe that Paul's teaching establishes or upholds the law in the sense that Christ has fulfilled the law by living and dying as he did. I said his active and passive obedience. He honored the requirements of the law. He kept them all. And then he died for our sins in his passive obedience. There's no doubt Christ fulfilled the law in that sense. Obviously he did. But I'm not sure that's what Paul meant here. In 3.20 he writes, Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That is, it is the office of the law not to save but to convince men of sin. So Paul's method of salvation by faith alone is in perfect harmony with the intent of the law. When you read the law, you should be convicted of sin because the law is holy and just and good. So the doctrine of justification by faith alone establishes the law in its rightful office as a revealer of sin. And it prepares man for justification. So justification by faith alone establishes the law. The purpose of the law is to convince us that we are sinners. And if you read it properly, it does that. If you think you've kept the Ten Commandments, go read the Sermon on the Mount. And you will discover you've not kept the Ten Commandments. Or go read James where he says, if you've broken one law, you've broken it all. That means if you've told a lie, you've also committed adultery and murder and covetousness and stealing and idolatry. All of it. The threefold consequences of justification is plain. All boasting is excluded except boasting in the Lord. You want to boast? Boast in Jesus Christ and Him alone. All distinctions are abolished. There's no racial distinction. There's no ethnic distinctions. They're all gone. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. False Jewish conceptions of salvation through the law are rejected. And the law is established because it convinces men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. The law convinces men of their need for justification. We're going to talk a lot about justification by faith alone before we're done with chapters 3 and 4 of Romans. And some might think, isn't this a bit monotonous? Isn't this a bit uh, repetitive? Do we really need to go over this over and over again? I spent week before last at the beach watching the Atlantic, the waves coming in. You know, it never gets monotonous watching the ocean, watching the vastness of it, thinking of, of, of the wonder of God's creation, marveling at its repetitious sameness. That, that never gets old. That, that is thrilling. 
to think about the, the creation of that way. We never complain about sunsets, about how they rarely ever vary, how they're mostly the same. The sun rises in the east, it sets in the west. Nor do we complain of the monotony of the bread that we eat every day. We don't complain about having enough food to eat, of having good things set before us. And so it is with the doctrine of justification by faith alone through the principle of grace alone. It is as fresh as the manna that God sent the children of Israel each day. It is glorious to think of it, to realize that this is the way that we are made right with God, that this is why we can stand before a holy God someday and say, I come only, only by the blood of Jesus Christ. I come only because I have put my faith in Him. I'm trusting in nothing else. In my hand, no price I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Let's pray. Our Father and our God.